Shalom, and welcome to Kehilat Rosh Pina, a dynamic, multicultural, and growing Messianic Jewish congregation located in the heart of Oklahoma City and led by Rabbi Michael Weigand. Our goal is to bring you the message of the Word each week from a Jewish perspective and to exalt the Messiah Yeshua as Lord and Savior overall. We are a loving congregation made up of both Jew and Gentile, now one in the Messiah, with Shabbat morning services at 10.40 a.m. and various studies throughout the week. Please come and join us next time you are in Oklahoma City. We would love to have you. And now, we hope you enjoyed today's message. I'd like to share with you a continuation from this morning over this time, which is our time of message. We talk about Sukkot. Sukkot is such a, I mean, not to overstate it, but it is truly a joyous time. When you think about it, there's a lot of reasons why it was a joyous time and always considered a joyous time. First of all, you got through Yom Kippur. And according to the Jewish tradition, it's a, a, a Yom Din, a day of judgment. And you go from Yom Kippur on the 10th day of the Hebrew calendar month of Tishri to the 15th day of the Hebrew calendar month of Tishri, which is the beginning of Sukkot. And so there's a, a lot of reason for rejoicing. And I, I'd like us again to think about, if we can, just try to think back 2,000 years ago. Was anyone there 2,000 years ago? You raise your hand. <laughs> No, there. I know my children did ask me what it was like in the days of Noah, and I said, <laughs> one of our children, I won't identify her, but we have two boys and one girl. <laughs> and I said, I didn't know what it was like in the days of Noah, but I know what Scripture points out. But we do have a lot of information about the second temple period. Some of it is found in Scripture, others is in extra-biblical writings and uh, tells us about that time. Historians such as uh, uh, Flavius Josephus, uh, Philo, others who wrote about this time frame, those two were Jewish historians, but there were others who also talked about this. So I want to talk to us this evening. This morning I spoke about the ceremony of lights, the light ceremony. And now I want to talk about a particular ceremony that took place in the temple, temple in the first century, and that was the water libation ceremony. And you might say, well, why are you talking about those things? I mean, they're not in the Bible and all that. But actually, both what we talked about this morning about the light ceremony and this particular ceremony, the water libation ceremony, though they're extra-biblical celebrations or commemorations or activities, you can see as you read through the Brit Hadashah, the New Covenant, that the writers were very aware of these two things. Very aware, and as we mentioned this morning, Yeshua went up to Jerusalem, to Jerusalem, uh, he, to, for Sukkot. He also went up for Pesach and for the other holy days. So, the first century, when we think about the temple, the Beit Hamikdash, the temple in Jerusalem, there was a saying that's that's come down about it. Some of you may have heard this, but it, it truly was a, a saying recorded about this. And the saying that went, particularly in the Jewish community, and you can find it in Jewish writings now, was, goes something like this, roughly, he who has not seen the temple in Jerusalem has never seen a beautiful thing. And 
that, first of all, that points out how beautiful the temple must have been. And it's very ironic that this is a saying that's come down within Judaism, within Jewish writings, has permeated out from that. But it's very ironic because the first century Jewish people that lived around the temple in the Galilee, also in the north and other places in Eretzisai on the land of Israel, they, more often than not, they despised, underlined, they despised King Herod. Yet, as much as they despised King Herod, they recognized the breathtaking beauty of the temple. And he was very involved, him and several others, one of whose name I'll mention in just a few moments. King Herod was very involved with this construction that went on, the continual addition and construction that went on for the second temple. We, sometimes we even call it what? We call it Herod's temple. So it was acknowledged how beautiful it was, and yet it was almost kind of like holding their nose because it was Herod who had so much to do with it. And nearly a thousand years after King David and, and Solomon, Jerusalem's second temple, remember the first temple, now the second temple at the time of Yeshua in the first century, was such a marvel that people commented on it. When they saw it, they commented it. And we have proof of that from the breach of the shop from the New Covenant in Luke chapter 21, verse 5, that the temple really got people's attention. It was ornate. It was beautiful. It was impressive. It was massive. It was well-constructed, and there were different reasons. Uh, you could see it from a distance, etc. And as we think about Jerusalem right now, Jerusalem is very spread out. There's East Jerusalem, West Jerusalem, the Eratica, the Old City, etc. But back then it was compact, more compact, smaller, and the temple really was imposing in Jerusalem. And Luke chapter 1, it reminds us that some people, some people were remarking about the temple, how beautiful its stonework and memorial decorations were. There were parts of it that people had contributed money to, and there was a donation plaque or some type of do, do, donation had been given, and then some type of building had been done with it. Is that still done nowadays? Yes. So people contributed to it. That section became part of the, you know, their heritage. Uh, they contributed to it. And they, they were connected to that particular section of the temple. But in Luke 21.5, it says that some people were talking, as, they, as some were talking about the temple. But actually, Matthew chapter 24 tells us who the some people are. You know who they were? They were disciples of Yeshua that were talking about the temple. There he was with them in Jerusalem and Jerusalem. There he was with them, and he, he points, they point out to, they point out to him, they say, look at how beautiful this is. And it's a different topic, but a little bit later in Matatiao, Matthew chapter 24, he, he warns them and he says, not one stone is going to be left on top of the other. And I don't, we don't grasp how significant a statement that was. That was such an impressive building and to think his statement that he says uh, not one stone is going to be left on each other. They must have looked at that and, and, and you know, anyone that heard him might have thought, unless they, did, they, unless they knew him, they might have thought, what's this guy talking about? There's no way. It took Herod decades and others decades to build that. Not one stone is going to be left on the other, but that's what happened. Again, that's another topic. So Jerusalem 
and its temple in the first century at the time of Yeshua and the Shlichim and the apostles was, was particularly alluring, easily uh, caught attention, that type of thing, and was even more so during the Shlosh Regalim, the three pilgrimage feasts, than being Pesach, Shavuot, and Sukkot, the pilgrimage feasts, when it was incumbent upon all males of Israel to go up to make Aliyah, to head up towards Jerusalem. Oh, oh, look at them go, going up to Zion. We just sang that. They just danced it. So Sukkot in particular stood out. There are a lot of reasons. Part of it I mentioned this morning in part one of this, this message tonight. There, there were ceremonies that took place at Sukkot, which was really the last great feast of the, the major feast of the Lord there was per year. There were ceremonies that took place at Sukkot that just set Sukkot apart, the Sukkot being another name for the Feast of Tabernacle or Booths. It just set it apart. First of all, it was, as we've been emphasizing here all this day, it was a time of rejoicing. It truly was a, a, a zaman simchatenu, the time of our rejoicing. But also, figuratively speaking, Sukkot could be called the granddaddy of all the feasts. In Hebrew, hehag means the, the, the feast of Sukkot. The feast means the feast of Sukkot, just like the fast means Yom Kippur. The fast. Or to put it another way, Sukkot was the crown and the glory of all the temple celebrations. Not only was there the celebration of lights that we spoke about this morning, and we barely touched the surface of the surface of the depth of that celebration. But in this particular celebration, the water libation thing, it gets even more intense, more dramatic, more encompassing, the water libation ceremony that took place, that the uh, authors, uh, historians point out took place at the time of the temple before it was destroyed in 70 CE by the Romans. The first century historian, Josephus, he went so far as to declare that Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles, from his point of view, quote, was the holiest and greatest of the feast, end quote. That's how he viewed it. Sukkot was the, quote, the holiest and greatest of the feast of the Lord. That was his opinion. Now, he was a Pharisee. We know that Josephus was a Pharisee. Do we know some others who were Pharisees? Yes, we do, like Rab Shaul, Paul the Apostle. He was a Pharisee born of, of Pharisees, and as a Hebrew speaker there. But Josephus saw Sukkot as really the granddaddy mall. It was the holiest and greatest of the feasts. And interestingly, modern archaeologists, and how many know there's a lot of digging going on in Israel right now, Lots of digging. How many are aware of that? There's a lot of digging going on in Israel. Lots of archaeology going on in Israel. And, and, and Americans are involved from universities. They're digging. Some of us have even had the opportunity to go to Jerusalem and to sift through some of the dirt. How many of you remember that? Some of us did that with one of our tours. We went and we sift through the dirt to see what we would find, the dirt that came from the Temple Mount, actually. 
There had been when uh, the Islamic people had been digging near there, the mosque, they tried to get rid of this dirt, and some very alert Israelis saw that, and they took that dirt, and they brought it to a place, and we sifted through it and, and found it, and they found some interesting things. So archaeology is going on all over, from one corner of Israel to the very bottom of Israel, from Eilat all the way up to Metula. Archaeology is taking place, and particularly in the Galilee and other areas, but in the city of David, right outside the old city walls. And please listen to this. Some of the recent ideas that have come that archaeologists agree somewhat with what Josephus says and what we read in the New Testament, the New Covenant. And this is an article that, that appeared in the Jerusalem Post recently concerning archaeology. I'll just read it, uh, segments of it here to give you an idea of, of what's out there in the secular world in the Jerusalem Post. Quote, some 2,000 years ago, as the festival of Sukkot approached, tens of thousands of Jews left their homes throughout the land of Israel and beyond and began a journey towards Jerusalem. There they would encounter a monumental and flourishing city and take part in what likely was one of the most intense religious experiences in the entire Roman Empire. Excavations in Jerusalem in conjunction with historical sources had revealed a grandiose picture of that heyday period just before the city and its temple would be destroyed at the hands of the Romans. The article continues, quote, People took a break from ordinary life, left their houses, and traveled towards Jerusalem which they reached through the area located at the southern tip of what today we call Ir David, the city of David. They would purify themselves in the pool of Siloam and then go straight up to the Temple Mount through a step street which was built under the Judean governor Pontius Pilate. In spite of his bad reputation, Pilate built some of the most impressive monuments in Jerusalem. Now we mentioned Herod, now Pontius Pilate. Both of these names appear in the Brit Hadashah. The article continues, quote, The first century Roman Jewish historian Josephus says that millions of people took part in the pilgrimage, bringing tens of thousands of sacrifices to the Holy Temple. Hellenistic Jewish philosopher Philo of Alexandria also speaks about the occasion. The itinerary for the Sukkot celebrations, please listen to how they describe it. The itinerary for Sukkot celebrations was designed in such a way that people would experience a wow effect. A wow effect. At the time of Herod, the Temple Mount was known as one of the biggest religious compounds in the Roman world. A wow effect, the archaeologists describe it. 
So in the first century, as they describe, and they've been uncovering that, some of us have been to the city of David. We have been to the Pool of Siloam. We've seen the steps that go up. Now they're more and more opening these themes up. And the very things they're finding, we can see that they connect with what we read in the Brit Hadashan, the New Covenant. In the first century, there was a passage of Scripture that was extremely important at this time. It's Yeshayahu chapter 12, verses 3 and 4, actually all of chapter 12. And this was robustly proclaimed at that time. Even as we might have public reading of Scripture like we did then, this was a passage of Scripture that was on the lips of people that first century, as they celebrated Sukkot, there were certain passages of Scripture, certain ideas, certain truths, certain principles that was right on the tip of their tongue. They spoke of these things, and here was one of them. At this time at Sukkot, at Zaman Simchatenu, the time of our rejoicing, Isaiah chapter 12, verse 3 says, Then you will joyfully draw water from the springs of salvation. Verse 4, on that day you will say, give thanks to Adonai, call on his name, make his deeds known among the people, declare how exalted is his name. That passage of Scripture, you shall draw You shall joyfully draw water from the springs of salvation meant a lot to them because the spring, what we now call the Pool of Siloam, was a significant part of Sukkot celebrations, as we'll see. There's a proverb that's rooted all the way back into the first century, all the way back into the time of the second temple, all the way back to the time of Herod and Pontius Pilate, but even more importantly to the time of Yeshua and the Shlichim, the apostles. The proverb's rooted back that far, but it says this. Quote, he who has not seen the rejoicing at the pouring out of the water of Siloam at the feast of Sukkot has never seen rejoicing in his life. Now, if the goal is the wow effect, you have the wow effect of this incredible Beit HaMikdash, this incredible temple in Jerusalem. You have the wow effect of the light ceremony we spoke about this morning, but then there was the water libation ceremony, which to me eclipses all that. It's incredible. Because in, te- in temple times, as the temple was in existence, the water porn ceremony was uh, particularly important particularly significant, and it involved a procession all the way up from the Pool of Siloam all the way up to the altar in the temple. And that's quite a procession. The bottom of the city of David all the way up, the stairs, those stairs have now been uncovered all the way up there. So the water of the Pool of Siloam was and is, it's still there, by the way. How many have been to the Pool of Siloam? I know some of us have. (laughs) But that's still there. And oftentimes there are certain things archaeologically that stay the same. Uh, I'll give you an example. Generally, mountains stay mountains. (laughs) Now, we may tunnel our way through this one or that one, but mountains stay mountains. Generally, rivers stay rivers. Now, there could be some dry rivers, etc., but generally, rivers stay rivers there. And in a place like the Middle East, there are springs of water that go perpetually year-round. How precious and valuable they are when we think about that Mayim Chaim living water, the kind of water that you can drink, Mayim Metukim, sweet water, so to say, how valuable these places are where there are springs where water continually flows through. 
and the Gihon Spring goes directly through Hezekiah's tunnel to the pool of Siloam. And some of us have seen that spring. We've walked through Hezekiah's tunnel with our shoes off <laughs> and came out to the spring, uh, the spring of the, the pool of Siloam. Uh, many years ago, I believe it was in 1975, um, I, was, I went to Jerusalem. I was a single man at that time. I went to Jerusalem, and I wanted to go through Hezekiah's tunnel, but it wasn't developed then. But I found a guide who would take me through. It was a young, young man. He was actually Arab, a young Arab man. And you know, money can talk. A few bucks can go a long way at times. And he, he, he consented. I don't know why I did it, but I did it. He consented to lead me through the, pool of, uh, the uh, Hezekiah's tunnel. It was not developed then. And in fact, honestly, I've been through it many times now. And the water was more back then than now. I don't know why. So we went, I had my little candle, and I'm following him, and we go into the tunnel, and I'm thinking, I hope this guy's on the level. <laughs> I hope he doesn't blow my candle out and run, you know, something like that. So we got all the way through, got all the way through there, and I was very appreciative. He was appreciative of a few dollars, so that was helpful to him. And then I went back and I told some of my friends, I was living on a kibbutz there, I told some of my friends of this adventure I had done. So you know what they wanted to do? They wanted to go through the pool also. <laughs> and one of the men was quite rotund. How do I say this kindly? He was quite rotund. And a few of us went again. We went down. This time I didn't feel like I need a guide, needed a guide. We had our little lights, you know, that type of thing. And little candles. I didn't think about flashlights. We had little candles. We go, we find it, we go in. We get halfway through it. And the rotund young man has a panic attack. Yeah, it was a, it was a lot of pressure on me. <laughs> he had a panic attack in the middle of Hezekiah's tunnel. And if you've been through it, it starts out as pretty large, and the more they dug it out, and you can read about Hezekiah's tunnel in the Scripture. It talks about, I read at the time of Hezekiah, that he built this tunnel to get the spring water into the city of David. So my friend, who um, had a little bit of an issue with uh, drinking Coca-Cola and being rotund, had a panic attack in there. It was, I mean, I, if you think I was scared the first time, I really got concerned with him. With, his name was Gene, getting through it. And finally, I still remember to this day how relieved I was that he got out of that tunnel. <laughs> there was temptation, like, leave him there, but I didn't do such a thing. <laughs> And he decided he never wanted to do that kind of thing again. <laughs> but the pool, the water of the pool of Siloam, it is and was fed by the Gihon Spring. And then it, it comes through Hezekiah's tunnel. So that water that's in Hezekiah's tunnel spills out at the pool of Shiloh, or Siloam as we call it in English. And to those going to Jerusalem in the first century, that pool of Siloam, who went there for Sukkot, that pool of Siloam, had great prophetic significance because it was attached, or what came through it was living water, free-flowing, constant-flowing, Mayim Chaim, living waters, Mayim Metukim, sweet water, good water to drink. They attached prophetic significance to it because of scriptures like Yeshayahu, Isaiah chapter 44, verse 3, 
where there are many scriptures, but this is an example that tells us God will pour out his spirit upon all flesh. But listen how that's explained in Isaiah chapter 44, verse 3. It says, for I will pour water on him who is thirsty and floods on the dry ground. Talks about water and pouring out water. When what's the next statement? I will pour my spirit, ruhi, my spirit on your descendants and my blessing on your offspring. So these type of scriptures made them realize there's a connection with a spring of water and the pouring out of the spirit, the water and the spirit. And because such waters became associated, these living waters became associated with an outpouring or even an anointing of the Holy Spirit. There are many scriptures that mention this. For example, the waters of Siloam, from the pools of Siloam, they were used to anoint kings of the house of David. That's pretty significant. And that anointing was considered symbolic of the Holy Spirit coming upon an individual. Individuals were anointed. Those waters were used to help anoint and make that anointing possible for those of the house of David. And also the waters from the pool of Siloam, they were used in the ordinance of the red heifer. How many have heard of the ordinance, the ashes of the red heifer? How many have heard of that? Very significant in, in, in uh, Torah thinking. But the pools of the water from the pools of Siloam were used along with the ashes of the red heifer and mixed together for the ordinance that's described in the Torah. But based on Isaiah chapter 12, verse 3, the pool of Siloam, again, to repeat, became known as the well of salvation. The well of salvation. And thus, because of that idea, became associated with, in first century thinking, the coming of the Messiah would be associated with the waters from the pool of Siloam, that well of salvation that Scripture talks about. And that brings us to Yohanan, John chapter 9. And we read how Yeshua healed a man born blind. Did you catch that? He healed the man who was born blind. You can read the whole story in John chapter 9. It's a fascinating story. But in John chapter 9, beginning with verse 5, I'll just give you a snippet from it. Yeshua says, while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Verse 6, having said this, Yeshua spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, put the mud on the man's eyes and said to him, notice where he sends him, go wash off in the pool of Shiloh or Siloam in English. And the name means sent in Hebrew. So what did the man do? He didn't say, oh, no, I'm never going to do that. That's dumb. No, he didn't say that at all. It says, so he went and washed. He did what he was told. And to obey, there's a great reward with obedience. He went and he did it and washed it away, and he came back seeing. So it was water of the pool of Siloam that was used to wash away the dirt that was on his side, the mud. So this, the fact that he sent him, Yeshua sent him to the pool of Siloam, just resonated. I mean, that idea resonated. And to the Jewish people of the Second Temple era, the pouring out of the living waters on the altar at the Feast of Sukkot was symbolic of the Holy Spirit being poured out in the days of the Messiah. There's this connect, there are these connectors here to all this. 
Now the water libation ceremony of Sukkot is described in several prominent places in Jewish writings. But it was indeed considered, just as Sukkot is, a time of jubilation. The water libation ceremony, as it was performed during Sukkot, was a time of jubilation. It was a time of exuberance. It was a time, again, to use the word, a time of great joy. And (laughs) it was also labor-intensive. I mentioned this morning that historically we know that all 24 groups of the the Levitical priests, they all had to work at the week of Sukkot. They all had to do work during Sukkot. Very similar here, as, as we'll see. So here's what likely took place in Jerusalem in the second temple days concerning the water libation. Libation is an expression used to describe water that's involved in a religious ceremony. Here's what happened. The water drawing and libation ceremony began early in the morning. So think about it. I don't know how many of you are early birds. Well, let me not ask that because we don't want to give it off here. But it began early in the morning. They couldn't waste their time. This took a lot of effort. It was indeed labor-intensive, just like the light ceremony was. So they had to get up early to draw this water It was long before sunrise, by the way, that they got up. And the water libation ceremony was done each day of Sukkot. So they did it once, they did it twice, they did it three times, etc. All the days of Sukkot. And it was done in participation, in connection with, anticipation of, conjunction with, however you want to describe it, with the morning shacharit, the morning sacrifice that took place at the temple. So there were morning sacrifices, there was the mincha sacrifice in the afternoon, there was a ma'ariv sacrifice at the end. And in the morning sacrifice, the shacharit, the morning sacrifice, the water libation ceremony for Sukkot was done in conjunction with that. So it didn't go against what it was done, but it was done in conjunction with it. And while the morning sacrifice was being prepared, a kohen or a Levitical priest Accompanied, please listen to this, accompanied by a great procession of people and musicians. So they all got up early, a great procession of people, including musicians, and they went down to the end, the southern end of the city of David, Er David. They went to the pool of Siloam. That's where they went down. They went to draw water from that pool, and they didn't just take down a plastic pitcher that they found somewhere or they bought at the dollar store. They took down a golden pitcher for the water. Now, doesn't that complement the golden menorah? So only the best. So they took down a golden... So you can imagine a Levitical priest, the uh, whole group of people following, going down, the musicians going down. What a ceremony, what a scene it is. And that's just the beginning of it. That's before the sunrise. They're all going down and doing that. And then at the same time, on the first day of Sukkot, another procession went down to the Kidron Valley. So that one that went down to the pool of Siloam through the city of David, the other went off, I guess it's more to the southeast, went to the Kidron Valley there. Another procession of priests. And they went to the Kidron Valley to get certain items, including willow branches. 
that we use at Sukkot. They went down there to Kidron Valley to get branches, uh, the this, this specific uh, prescribed materials that would be placed around the altar that formed kind of a leafy canopy. So you can imagine Sukkot is a harvest festival. If you looked at the, the altar at that time during Sukkot, it looked like harvest. Branches and leaves and everything. And as the sacrifice proceeded, the morning sacrifice proceeded, the Kohen the priest who had gone down to the pool of Siloam with the picture, the golden pitcher with the water, he would time his return back so that he connected with the one who had gone to the Kidron Valley and that procession, and they connected together at a gate that was called the Watergate. Now, why was it called Watergate? And nothing to do with politics. <laughs> it was the access down to the living waters there. And as they got to the Watergate... Along with the Kohanim, they were accompanied by a three-fold blast of the shofar. Dean, would you be able to do that? Let's listen. There's three-fold blast of the shofar. Notice the three. I'm going to call it out for you again. This is uh, impromptu, but uh, he can do this. So, Tekiah, Shevarim. Teruah. Thank you. Could you imagine this, this scene? Now, they're coming with a gold pitcher. They have willow branches and other things that are prescribed in the Torah. They use for Sukkot. They're heading towards the altar. It's about time for the morning sacrifice. The, the regular sacrifice is going to happen. And all this is converging towards the temple and towards the altar, the Beit HaMikdash, the temple of Jerusalem. Now, that there would be the blast of the shofar, the musicians and the singers come into this a little bit later, and the priest carrying the golden pitcher, accompanied by his procession, and when he got to the altar area, he would circle around the altar once per day. But on the seventh day, on Hoshana Rabbah, on the seventh day, how many can guess how many times he went around the altar? Seven times. Reminds me of the walls of Jericho. Does it remind you of that? And so this whole thing, this pomp and circumstance was there. And they would have some wine. They'd have this water. And then as they got to the altar, when they came to the altar, there were two basins. And they were silver. Silver basins. Again, no plastic back then. Silver basins. And these silver basins had narrow holes in them. One basin would receive wine in into it as a wine libation. The other received water in it as a water libation. And they were made so the wine and the water mixed. And it reminds me of so much when Yeshua's side was pierced. Reminds me so much of that. So they would pour the wine in one basin, the water in the other. There were holes that caused them to converge together to come onto the altar. The wine and the water, both are sacrificed, both have libations onto the altar. It would, just, would go to the very base of the altar, the Mizbeach. So into these two silver basins or bowls, there was that drink offering of wine and the water from where? From the pool of Siloam connected. As soon, please listen to this. So all that's happened, that's enough already. As far as I'm concerned, Dayenu, that's enough. There's a lot to do. You're up before dawn. You're going down the Pool of Siloam. You're going to the Kidron Valley. You're cutting down willow branches. You're carrying your golden pitcher. You're getting your water thing. You have a procession going both directions. You have musicians and all this going on. 
But that's not all that happened. Because as soon as the wine and the water, and they determined that the wine and the water had mixed, and as they were being poured out, and when the people around could see that these two actually mixed, both the wine libation and the water libation, the temple music began. How many like some good music? Would you love to have a recording of what they did back then? And it began, but they had a particular, particular thing that they sang and did musically. It's called the Hallel. The Hallel. Psalm 113 through Psalm 118. Psalm 113, you can check this out on your own time. Very important also for Pesach, for Passover. From Psalm 113, but when you get to Psalm 118, there it was. The great, you know, conclusion, there it was. So they sang the Hallel, the Hallel which is Psalm 113 to 118. And they, there was a Levitical choir. Can you imagine a choir of Levite priests singing? <laughs> but they were also accompanied by music. And we can take a lot of this back to King David, who was very much a musician, very much wanted to serve the Lord, and these two meld together so well under his reign. So when the choir came to Psalm 118, verse 1, they started at 113, 114, 115, 116, 117. They got to Psalm 118, verse 1, the last psalm of the Hillel Psalms. When they got to that, it starts out with, Hodu Ladonai Kitov. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. And then when it got to Psalm 118, verse 25, it says, Hoshiana, please, Adonai, please, Lord. What does it say? Please, Lord, save us. Save us. Please, Adonai, rescue us, depending on your translation. And then when you get further into Psalm 118, which was the last psalm of the Hillel Psalms, it says, Give thanks to Adonai for he is good, for his grace continues, his mercy continues forever. And when they got to that section, his mercy continues forever, you know what they would do? It's very interesting because we still do this nowadays. They would wave their lulavs. They would wave their palm branches. They, They waved them in unison. And the goal, because this, a lot of this, the water and all this pointed to the Holy Spirit or the Ruach HaKodesh, the goal was to make this sound of a rushing wind that sounded like the Spirit. Because in Hebrew, the word Ruach can mean spirit, depending on context. But Ruach also means wind. So they took their lulavs, the other yard Sukkot, they're waving their lulav, and they're trying to make this sound, this sound of a wind kind of sound as a symbol of the Holy Spirit. Now, we don't need to say what happened in Acts chapter 2. When the Ruach Kodesh came upon them not far from that temple area, came upon them like the sound of mighty wind came upon them the 120 in the upper room in Acts chapter 2. And then on the last day of Sukkot, and probably right after the symbolic water pouring, went around in the last day, the seventh day, seven times around the altar, they did the symbolic pouring of the water and the chanting of the Hillel Psalms, which implore the Lord, implore the Lord to send Yeshua, to send salvation Many believe it's at that time that Messiah spoke up. 
And John 7, he went, his brothers went before him, then he went afterwards. We spoke about this this morning. But John 7, beginning with verse 37, gives us quite a bit of information. It says that on the last, now on the last day of the festival, Hoshana Rabbah, it's named now, the eighth day of Shemini Atzeret, on the last day of the festival, Hoshana Rabbah, in the middle of this water ceremony, you don't know exactly when, but it fits perfectly in here. In the middle of it, Yeshua stood and he cried out, if anyone is thirsty, let him keep coming to me and drinking. Was that appropriate for the water ceremony? Yes. Yes. Whoever puts his trust in me, as the scripture says, rivers of living water, not just a spring, but rivers of living water will flow from his inmost being. And then it tells us in Yohanan 7, now this he said, he said this about what? The spirit, the ruach. They're trying to make these sounds that sound like the wind, the water symbolic of of the uh, spirit. And he said this about the spirit whom those who trust in him were to receive later. I want to conclude with this thought here as we continue with our service. We, as Messianic followers of Yeshua, I think we're privileged tonight to celebrate Sukkot. We're not celebrating something that just popped up 20 years ago. This goes all the way back to the time of Moshe to Moses. And as I mentioned this morning, it's such an important idea for us, I believe. Moses didn't think this up. These are God's Moadim, his appointed times. And I believe it's a privilege to be able to connect to them, that he invites us to partake of them. And how much more privileged are we when we see fulfillment in Yeshua of these? Because each of the Moadim point to us to, to Yeshua as Lord and King. Now, we placed our trust. If you're a follower of the Messiah, you placed your trust in Yeshua as your Lord and Savior. You've done that. And he mercifully gives you his grace. Have any of you ever received grace from the Lord? I certainly have still received. I'm so thankful for his grace. But he also gives us his word so that we might walk according to his word and his spirit, his ruach, so that we'll do what's right in his sight according to his word. He said this in Luke chapter 11, verse 13. He's talking to his followers and those who are listening to him. He said, if you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children. And then he poses this question to them or this idea, this, this exclamation. How much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? My challenge to us this evening on this Sukkot. Let's be people of the Holy Spirit. Let's be people of the Spirit. Let's ask him for fresh and a new anointing in our life. As we go from this Sukkot and and, and God be pleased, we're able to come to next Sukkot. Let's make this Sukkot a time that we, we step all the more into obeying the Lord according to his word and following what he says to do according to his spirit. And let's continually ask him. Let's ask him to give us, as he said, how much more will you, Heavenly Father, give this spirit to those who ask him? Let's make sure we ask him for the anointing of his Holy Spirit. Friends, there's much more to say about it. I hope your interest has been piqued by both the water ceremony and the light ceremony. Check it out. 
See how they connect with the teachings of Yeshua and what happened in the first century. And we continue now with one of the most important parts of this service, which is the waving of the lulav. And guess which psalm? Psalm 118. You've been listening to the Shabbat message from Rosh Pina Messianic Jewish Congregation in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. We would love to have you visit us. Our weekly services begin at 10.40 a.m. each Shabbat. And we are located at 2600 Northwest 55th Place, north of Northwest Expressway at the corner of Northland Avenue and Northwest 55th Place. We meet each Shabbat for wonderful praise and worship with dance, liturgy, teaching, food, fellowship, excellent children's programs, and Bible studies on Tuesday nights. For more information, please visit our website, www.roshpinah.org. That's R-O-S-H-P-I-N-A-H. You can also reach us by phone at 405-842-1967 or email us at info at roshpinah.org. Thank you for spending time in the Word with us today. Shabbat Shalom and blessings in Messiah Yeshua.